Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. And I hope you're enjoying this pop-up podcast, Murder and Mayhem, where you get into the mind and the minds of all of these incredible writers who delve into the dark world of crime and thriller writing. It's absolutely fascinating getting a peek into what really goes on, into how they create their plots and how they develop their characters and how they research and make stuff so credible when you're reading it. You, sometimes you actually wonder, gee, how, how do they do do this? Have they really done it themselves? Well, of course they haven't. They use their imagination and they do a lot of research. And um, if you are interested in the crime and thriller writing genre, then you may also be interested in the accompanying ebook to this pop-up podcast series. You can get your free ebook, A Month of Murder and Mayhem, 31 Days with the Best crime and thriller authors at murdercourse.com. Now today we are chatting to Morel Day. Morel is a, an Australian author known for her mystery novels like The Life and Crimes of Harry Lavender and the Lambs of God. Now, she has won multiple awards, including the Seamus Award for her first Claudia Valentine novel and the prestigious Ned Kelly Award for her non-fiction book, How to Write Crime. She's also written The Seabed, about a Buddhist monk who leaves his monastery to carry out a fellow monk's dying wish. And other books include Mrs. Cook, The Real and Imagined Life of the Captain's Wife, and Shirley's Song. Morel is widely respected in Australia and throughout the world as an authority on crime and writing about crime. So I hope you enjoy today's instalment. Thanks for joining us today, Morel. 
I'm very pleased to be here. Now, you seem to be able to switch between genres very easily from crime fiction, which you're very well known for, to historical, to non-fiction. Is that difficult? Do you have to get yourself into a different zone or something before you do that? Well, I don't know if I have a, a low boredom threshold, but I, I don't like doing the same thing again and again. And I did four crime fiction books and enjoyed very much that experience. But uh, for me, writing is a bit of an adventure, like it's, a, it's like traveling somewhere to some new territory. And that's where I want to go each time with a new book is to travel to some new territory. And uh, I feel for me it's actually easier than going over ground that I may have visited before because then I feel I might be tempted to go into familiar patterns and it would be repetitive. So it does require a huge amount of research, I have Mm. to say, but I'm willing to go there. Now, when did you first know you wanted to be a writer? Was it from when you were very young or is it later in life? Absolutely not when I was young, although I have to say I was always uh, strongly aware of the power of language. When I was about three, for example, my aunt was getting divorced and the word was spoken in such such hushed tones. Mm. I felt that it it, it had such power that, you know, if you said it out aloud, something might explode. So I was always aware of the the strength and power of language. Um, But I didn't start writing. I had no conscious desire to do it. Or I was even actually writing before I realised that's what was what was happening. Mm. Again, it had to do with travel, and instead of taking photographs of places, I'd write a little something. Or perhaps I felt that taking photographs was intrusive, and I do remember my very first line of what I think is probably writing: spring dotting the grass like Claude Monet. Now, that was an observation that I must have made somewhere, mm. and it sort of popped out, and I thought. Well, I wouldn't actually say that, so this Mm. must be writing. But it very much started with doodling and little poems and little descriptive pieces. And how did you nurture that? How did you develop your writing skills and hone your creativity? Well, I enjoyed this this little exercise, and I think when you're travelling, it's a way of hearing your own language somehow. Not only, I don't mean by that just English, but one's individual language Mm. so there was certainly that and once I realized that what I was doing was writing then I realized I also had to do more than just the little descriptive bits Mm -hmm. I started with poems as I said Mm. but I felt that I wanted to go to longer pieces and in fact I feel much more comfortable with a novel because it's much more robust beast for me than a poem mm. if a poem didn't come almost you know straight out almost born um in one go I didn't feel I had the facility to go back and edit it which I know poets can go over a poem 30 40 times mm. but I felt I could sort of cut and paste and change a novel around because it was robust enough to put up with that and really uh you know my I've been writing for more than 20 years now and back then there was not a lot of um, what we might call help for writers. There weren't the creative writing courses. There weren't, you know, institutions like yours. There weren't workshops. There weren't that sort of thing available to writers. So you just feel your way into it. Mm. It's um, It takes a lot of effort when you don't have those resources. Um, what's 
your favourite genre to write in or, or do you have a genre that you find more challenging than, than others? I probably wouldn't have a favourite genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that the kind of writing, well, skills, I suppose, are the same whatever genre you're doing. You mm-hmm. still have to take care of the narrative drive, making sure the characters lift off the page, the attention to detail, the structure and pacing, all those things that you might do in one genre also apply to another. There may be a different focus as to how important the story is in relation to language and imagery, but certainly all those things are the same. Mm. When you were writing crime, how did you research uh, the crimes? I probably started with newspapers um, and books, etc., and then started to develop... I mean, you, you need to develop research skills, and, and when I was doing that, it was very much at the beginning, and, and Harry Lavender, for example, The Life and Crimes of Harry Lavender, which was my first... I think I was winging it a lot. Mm. I think I'm probably, as the novels developed, and you would get letters from readers too about, you know, this is not right or that's not right. Mm. I became far more precise with the detail in the crime research. But I obviously didn't go out and murder someone myself. But you read (laughs) court reports and I visited the morgue, uh, rang people, you know, poisons experts, forensic detail, all that kind of thing. Mm. And for a writer, I find that research out in the world far more enjoyable than the internet, for example, because Mm. there's so much time you spend by yourself. It's great to get out there. Um, And, of course, there's location research too. That's extremely important with crime fiction because location is always such. There's always such a strong sense of place in crime fiction. When you research crime, you obviously come across some fairly unusual and some quite dark and disturbing things. Was that something that fascinated you throughout your life or is that something that was a necessary part of of your your fiction writing? More a necessary part of, I would say. Um, When I first decided to write crime fiction, it was not the crime so much as that sense of place that's depicted in crime fiction, you know, which is Mm. what I've just said. I wanted Mm. to write a novel about Sydney and it seemed, uh, well, two things. I wanted to write a, a novel about Sydney and I wanted to practice writing plot because, as I said, most of my experience had been with poetry. And it seemed that a crime novel would kill these two birds with one stone. It's obviously plot strong mm. and, uh, you know, it has a, a, has a good sense of place. So that was the motivation in, in doing it. It wasn't necessarily uh, an interest in crime, but, mm. I mean... That develops in a sense. You sort of wonder about people's motivations and what's actually going on inside them because criminals uh, are human like all of us Mm. and you just wonder what it takes to step over that edge. I was quite interested in, I have to say, that a particular crime that interested me with those four Claudia Valentine mysteries Mm. was the one depicted in the case of the Chinese boxers which was based on a real crime that occurred in Chinatown in Sydney um, where the criminals spent about two days inside the bank Mm. and they um, took safety deposit boxes in the end. But it was quite a well-executed crime and the sort of... I I was able to see a lot of police evidence of that particular crime. They were smart enough to uh, have 
done it on the eve of the bicentenary when there were lots of fireworks going mm. off and people weren't paying particular attention to um, you know, a few extra noises, etc. Mm. And as far as I know, they still have never been found. So they they were uh, smart enough to not brag about it too much afterwards mm. either. Um, so tell us about your new book, The Seabed, which is about a Buddhist monk and his journey away from the monastery. How did this book come about? Well, the book came about uh, probably there are two main uh prongs to it, to write about the sea, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the sea that you, you get from the, the view from the beach, but submersion in the sea, what it likes to, what, what it felt like to be submersed in seawater. Um, I started doing some snorkeling and, and I just was absolutely fascinated with life below the surface. One, that that fish, etc., they, they seem to just swim with you, they're not. They don't seem to um, swim away from you so much as when you're thrashing about on the surface swimming. Mm. And also, there's that very feeling of fluidity that you have in water. It's somehow you're buffeted by the water, and you don't feel the pull of gravity so much. So I, that was definitely one thing. And the other thing was, again, to look for uh, a different world. As I said, you know, all my books are different. And mm. I'd been to Japan on a a promotional tour with Shane Maloney and Peter Doyle, two fellow crime writers, was for translation of our uh, our crime books into Japanese. Mm. And it was a highly organised 10 days there. And uh, it fascinated me, and what particularly fascinate, fascinated me, I suppose, was that every minute of our day was organised and I only caught brief glimpses of what this country might be. So it seemed that... Um, setting a novel there by the sea would have been a good idea. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I'd always known about the ama, that's a Japanese word for the traditional women divers of Japan. And I thought, that's it. And also, too, what really uh, gave the thing some urgency was that I met a Japanese woman here in Australia who said, when I told her I was thinking of doing that, she said, oh, I didn't think there were any still left. And when I started to do research into it, I realized that their numbers were diminishing. Mm. And so there, were, there was that sense of urgency to go there before they disappeared completely. Mm. Fascinating. Um, is that how your ideas come about? Something that just sort of piques your interest, and then you want to explore it? Or is that, is that how, how it works for you? More or less, yeah. It, it, it's not even something you're particularly looking for. It mm. comes to you. And so... You, you need to sit with it for a while. Uh, that could take, you know, months or even years. Mm. And it's often, as I described with the seabed, it's often two things that come and you think, is there enough for a story here? Is there enough, you know, to go the length of a novel? And also, I don't, I tend not to act on it straight away. I let the, the ideas, um, sit there. I do a bit of, of sort of ex- exploration in my head before I actually do any research. I look at possibilities because you have to live with a novel for so long. Mm. You want to know that you're going to be interested by it to, oh, yes. you know, for that the time it takes to see you through it. So when you are in that writing process, can you tell us about your typical writing day then? Do you have a routine or a ritual at all when you're writing a novel? 
Uh, it depends what draft I'm up to, and I'll just briefly say that I do three drafts, and the first draft is very loose and rough and you know, I never read the material back because I know it's bad. And the second draft is when I'm looking at what I'd call the macro units, big structural level, you know, like when you give where when and where do you give certain information, are the characters consistent, um, you know, pacing or is this have we had enough of this thing and do we need to go on to something else? And the third level is where I really pay attention to the words on the page is this the right image, etc.? Mm. Um, really make those words work for you. But on a daily, a practical basis, by the second and third draft, I'm obsessed. <laughs> and there's no discipline problem whatsoever. <laughs> I get up and I want to do it. In fact, it's in my mind 24 hours a wow. day there. And you kind of somewhat removed from the real world. And you hope you're not mm. burning the house down because you've left <laughs> something on the stove, whatever. But in the first draft... Um, that's what, that's the one that I find excruciating, uh, that <laughs> tyranny of the blank page. And I try and aim for a thousand words a day. Mm. And, it, you know, real life intervenes and you can't actually often work every day, can't mm. actually write every day. But um, And I can start that as soon as I get up or I can procrastinate and clean the fridge <laughs> and do all of that, as we all writers know so well, mm-hmm. and think, my God, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I better start doing something. So I try and, and aim for a word uh, goal. And I do my first draft longhand. Oh, wow. Out of the now, out of the now seven novels that I've written, I did two straight on the computer and found it quite um, dissatisfying, mm. the process. And I wonder why this this was, uh, and I think it's because, well, there's a couple of things. I work in big uh, fool's cap books, hardcover, so I can't, they're fairly portable. You know, I can go outside and, mm. and, and, and write on them because the cover's hard enough to lean on. Um, I think it's that uh, you're much closer to the material when you're handwriting. Mm. The idea occurs in your brain, it sort of comes down your arm out of the pen and you're actually touching the page, you're touching the place where the word's coming out and it's all a lot more organic and tactile. Mm. And I think the wavy movement of handwriting comes from a different part of your brain than the kind of on-off digital movement when you're tapping keys. Mm, mm. Um, I think I, I love the computer for subsequent drafts because I it, because it's as if you're doing this tapping and the word's coming up on a screen somewhat dissociated from you and that allows me to better edit the material because it, it has uh, it, it, it's, it's more objective it's, it, I didn't actually put those words on the screen they came there through the machine <laughs> so that's that's the sort of difference it is for me and I have to say too in addition with this novel because it's got three main characters this novel is the seabed it has the Buddhist monk as he pointed out and it has uh, Chicken and Lily, two women divers who are sisters. Chicken is the one who's remained in the community, and Lily is the one who, for her own reasons that we end up discovering through the course of the novel, left and took up a city life. And during the first draft, I had different colour pens for them as well. The monk was green, uh, Chicken was just a regular black pen, and Lily's pen was purple. So that allowed me to sort of um, somehow uh, 
go from one narrative point of view to another. Plus, it was easy to see on the page uh, how much how much space each of them was getting. So that if I thought, oh, I've probably done quite a lot of the monk now, perhaps I better switch over to the other character's point of view. Mm. And also, you are a very experienced writing teacher. Why do you do that as well? Well, I love I love doing that, uh, and I'm very uh, pleased to do it, and still feel enthusiastic about it after a number of years. And I have to say, probably that's what I always wanted to do when I was a kid. I wanted to be a teacher, and that's in mm. fact what I did do for um, you know some years after leaving school primary school teaching mm. and university teaching. And to teach something that you love, like writing, uh, you know, is just a joy. I love the mentoring process. I mean, I do teach workshops, etc. Mm. But that one-on-one mentoring, when you actually go into the world of somebody else's novel and a novel that is still at its potential and not uh, finished, to go into that world and to sort of see what what it might be um, and to see what, what the, the, the uh, positive aspects of that novel, the distinctions, the distinctive voice of it, and also to sort of think, well, what's not working and how can you make it better? But, and, of course, it's not up to me to make it better. It's up to sort of uh, the writer to sort of take on board suggestions. And mm. it's quite a, a remarkable process, I think, when that happens see what a writer actually does with suggestions. Mm, mm. What for you personally has been one of the hardest parts of the, your writing process? Well, it is that first draft. It's making up the story, I think, mm. because what I loved about writing in the first place was that doodling aspect of mm. it. Um, the feeling that you get, you might get with morning pages, for example, when mm. you're just free writing. And nobody's going to see it, so it doesn't have to have a structure. It doesn't have to have a particular shape. But that onward-going story structure for me um, has always been difficult and I have to say it hasn't got any better over the course of the book. So after that difficult first draft, you say you become obsessed with the second and third draft. Are you very exhausted by the end? Is it? And what is the feeling like at the end? Is it relief or exhaustion? Well, when the whole book is finished. Yeah, when you know you're done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. Um, it's. I mean, you, you you sort of at the, the top of your brain all the time. There's this great adrenaline charge when you're mm. obsessed, and you sort of you know what you have to do, and and everything is racing, which is fantastic, even in a fairly contemplative novel like The Seabed. But I did feel with that. Um, but I felt like I'd given birth to an elephant. <laughs> and I felt like I'd just have to, because uh, it took four years. It's the longest, it's a book that's taken me the longest to write. Mm. Yes, I just felt, uh, oh, I just have to lie here for a while and recuperate. It's a great feeling, though, because it, it must be the feeling that someone who's run a marathon has at the end. You're exhilarated that you've hit the finishing line, but then you just have to lie around for a while as well. <laughs> but fortunately, with a the marathon, they're only living with it for 42 kilometres. When you live with a book for four years, do you feel slightly bereft at the end that this thing's gone now? Well, yeah, I, I think you do. Um, it's it's uh, You have this big hole, which I suppose is why the resting period, you've got to rest and get over it. And you've also got to rest and, and wait till your well fills up again, if you like, you know, your well of ideas. But mm. um, 
the thing is, it, it's interesting because it, it's a sort of gradual process. There is that defined special moment when you hand it over to the publisher, mm. when you hand the manuscript over, but there's inevitably other stuff to do with it, do with it, with the book. It, it gets edited, etc. So it comes back to you. But it's gone to other hands, mm. in a sense, and it's being looked after by others as well. And there's that wonderful process, too, when the manuscript uh, is transformed in a book with a mm. cover and mm. beautiful design in, inside, etc., etc. Mm. And I suppose that's the moment when you feel it can live on its own. And that may be akin to the day when you're child first goes to school Mm. you feel okay you know it can be it can have that time at school away from you know the parent it Mm. can be looked after by others and it can manage on its own to some extent too what a great description and what would your advice be for aspiring authors out there who are listening to this and thinking you know i'd really like to have a go at that one day i'd really like to finally get that discipline what would your advice be to them Sit down and do it. <laughs> I know that's very trite to say, but stay seated. Stay seated for as long as it takes. And I think what you need to do is to prioritize it because I know myself too, other things get, uh, you know, you will willingly do other things. I mean, it's not just procrastination. If somebody asks you to write a particular piece or review a book or do a workshop or whatever, you will always say yes to it and think, oh, well, there'll be another day to write the book. Mm. But the writer is the only person who can write this book. Everybody, there, are, everything else in your life can be taken care of by others in a sense. Even if you die, let's go to an extreme, other people can look after your family, but no one can write this book. And so you need to prioritize it. And, and see that it's important mm. and uh, sit down and give it the time for as long as it takes. And it might take, as I said, four years. Mm. I love it. Sit down and just do it. It makes perfect sense. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Morelle. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now, it was a great pleasure for me to talk to Morelle, and I love the fact that she didn't really kind of – think about writing consciously, but she just sort of started writing observations down while she was traveling and they became little descriptive pieces and little poems. And eventually they became much longer pieces and also crime novels as well. So if you kind of sometimes feel the urge or, you know, to be honest, even if you don't feel the urge, if you're interested in writing, you don't have to necessarily sit down with an entire book in your mind sometimes you might just be on the bus or you might be traveling or you might be in a beautiful location and you I encourage you just to write a description of what you're seeing or a description of what you're feeling or smelling and just seeing where that takes you because you never know you might end up like Morel one day super successful with lots of books under your belt but they all start somewhere so I hope you enjoyed having a chat or listening to the chat with Morel. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.